This podcast contains depictions of violence and abuse perpetrated against children, including sexual abuse and rape, as well as suicide, institutional racism, intergenerational trauma, and a bit of swearing. But there's also friendship, love, inappropriate puns, and general skullduggery. The survivors of Lake Alice want their stories to be heard. But do take care when and where you listen. Stuff Podcasts. Previously on The Lake. If you could make this a movie, you wouldn't let your children watch it. And yet we lived in it. When you have a guardianship order made in favour of the Department of Social Welfare, they have all the powers and authorities of a parent in respect of that child. We clung to each other out of fear, out of terror. So I don't get those kids. If you keep screaming and yelling, they'll keep doing it to you. But if you actually say, oh, is that it, and you don't do so much, then that desired effect then stops. From Popsock Media and Stuff, this is The Lake, a podcast about the children of Lake Ellis. I'm Aaron Smale, and this is episode five, Outrageous in the Extreme. It is. Hi, Jennifer. How you going? Yeah, good, buddy. Um, Sam's just turned up. He's setting everything up. What I'm going to do, Aaron, I'm going to put the do not disturb feature on my phone so no incoming calls or messages come through to upset the recording, okay? That's all right. Thank you. Hang on a second, buddy. Hang on. This is Jennifer. She's the wife of a man called Kevin Banks. They've been married for 30 years and live in Australia, hence the bird racket in the background. Three, two, one. Speak to me. <laughs> Kevin's 62. He's got a dry wit and a love of music. And at one point, he was a professional drummer. He's also a survivor of Lake Ellis, who has been fighting for justice possibly longer than anyone. Like so many of the kids who survived that place, Kevin's legal parent was the state. But it was a neglectful one. So what happens when a child who's grown up without guidance, love and support is packed up and sent out into the world? I couldn't stay in New Zealand. Um, I just got to get the hell out of there. I did not want to go back to Lake Ellis again for anything. It scared me out of the country, more or less. And what happens when that kid figures out they've been wronged and decides to confront their parent? They haven't been straight. Even to this day, they haven't been straight. And I don't think they ever will be. In the last episode, we got a taste of the horror and terror of everyday life for the kids at Lake Ellis. But if you decided to skip it, don't worry you'll still be able to follow what comes next. We're picking the story up where we left off at the end of episode three. Over the years, Kevin Banks has told his story a lot of times to the police, the medical council, and he was all over the media in New Zealand and Australia through the late 90s and early 2000s. And this time, he's kept a huge number of files relating to Lake Ellis, a whole archive of official documents and media articles. I credit my wife for that. She's been very responsive when it comes to justice. She's seen the injustice that occurred in New Zealand. We feel that New Zealand should not be able to turn around and commit atrocities like this and get away with that. So we've followed the paper trail. We've kept that. Kevin would probably like to talk about something else other than Lake Ellis, but he can't. 
Not until justice, or something like it, has been served. And now it's time to turn around and show and tell, I think. Kevin was sent to Lake Ellis when he was 14 years old, in 1973, and he stayed there longer than most kids, two short stints at first, but then his third was nearly two years long. Oh, I, I, was, I was told I was going to be there forever, and Lake Ellis said it was going to be a lifelong thing. So Kevin learned to adapt to the system. By the time he was 15, he was basically an employee at Lake Ellis, albeit a badly paid one. He had odd jobs like caring for some of the geriatrics, emptying fire grates, taking bodies to the morgue, and building beer crates for one dollar a week. For Kevin, Lake Ellis was his normal, his home. He'd become institutionalised. Then one day, the institution was done with him. I remember one morning waking up, I was in Billerate, and I was told that after breakfast, right, get your bag and that I was leaving. And I thought that I was being transferred to Porirua because a few people had been. Porirua was another psychiatric hospital you'd be aware of. Put into a vehicle, given five minutes to say goodbye to the guys that I'd been around with for a long time, and he'd made a detour past Porirua, and I'd asked him on the way if that's where I was going, and he wouldn't tell me. But it was a joke right up to the bloody end. Kevin was driven to Lower Hutt and dropped off at a YMCA. This was his home now. He'd also been set up with a job, working at a cigarette factory. He was in completely unfamiliar territory, going cold turkey off the drug cocktail he'd been on for years. I wasn't given any other doctors to go and see, basically, so I guess crashing on medication and it's very hard to keep a job, so I didn't keep that job for very long at the cigarette factory. Kevin floundered, and it wasn't long before he was homeless. Where I was staying, I only managed to stay there a few weeks in the YMCA. Then I walked down the railway track down to Wellington and um, and took residency at uh, Courtney Place bus stop. The details might be different, but the general arc of Kevin's story is very similar to others I've heard. Take Leonie McEnroe, for example, the girl with the abusive foster mum, Mother T. Leonie spent just over a year at Lake Ellis, and when she was released, she went straight into a different foster home. Her new family sent her to Palmerston North Girls High School, but nobody had prepared her for that transition. I'd come out of literally the loony bin, mm. so I was drugged. Everybody knew I was from Lake Ellis. And that really affected me quite deeply. I was an outcast. Leonie did manage to make one friend. She was a girl who was a bit of an outcast like her. Things got better for a bit, but then one day, her new friend's dad tried to rape Leonie. She'd find out later that he was already abusing her friend, and so was the girl's brother, Leonie was terrified and completely lost. She asked, actually she begged, to be taken back to Lake Ellis. When I returned to Lake Ellis, the nurses were furious with me and they let me know really clearly 
you have probably blown it for that family ever taking kids from Lake Alice again. You've blown it. Now, no one asked me what happened. Because I'd blown it, Dr. Leake said I was getting shock treatment. I felt like someone had smashed open my head with an axe straight down the middle. The pain was excruciating. And this was a place that Leone had chosen to return to. Lake Alice had become more predictable. It's become a known torture to me. Absolutely, I was institutionalised. There's no question about it. But Leone was never going to be allowed to stay there forever. The week before my 16th birthday, Lex's 2IC came and said to me, Leone, you know, you're, um, you're going to be 16 soon and um, you can't be here after you're 16. Uh, not that you're cured of all this shit that we've said you've got, not that you've progressed or we see any change of this treatment plan that we set up for you or wellness or what. There was nothing. It was 16, you know. Sorry, honey, you're out. Like Kevin, Leonie wasn't referred to a doctor or given repeat medications for the antipsychotic drugs she'd been on. She was put into a religious girls' home but Leonie had taken up smoking at Lake Alice, and the home took exception to her sitting up in a tree smoking all day. So the Methodist mission found her a flat on her own. Leonie was 16 and hadn't really formed any good relationships. At the age that any kind of nurture stopped for me, and growth emotionally or support in any way. If you stop it at that age over there, I don't know, seven, eight, and then you whiz up here to 16 and there hasn't been any nurturing or social input that is healthy, the emotional deficit, that is huge. When most of the adults in your life have been terrible, you remember the few good ones. After Kevin lost his job at the cigarette factory and started living in a bus shelter, a bus driver took pity on him and offered him a place to stay. I can't believe my bloody luck, but I tell you what, he's respectable, decent, and he helped me out. He really helped me to move forward, um, helped close me, just a guy that was genuine. And so I was lucky, I think, after Lake Alice, yeah. I think I was a bit blessed there. Kevin had only been at the bus driver's place for a few weeks when there was a knock at the door. It was the police. I thought I was in trouble. I thought I was going back to Lake Alice again, to be honest. No, she's about ready to run, and then this police officer turned around and said, they will come to question you about what you've been through at Lake Alice and so forth. It was mid-1977. The magistrate's inquiry had wrapped up, the one that was held in secret. But Oliver Sutherland, in accord, 
the Auckland Committee on Racism and Discrimination, hadn't stopped fighting. They joined up with two other survivors to make complaints to the police. And now, the police had kicked off their own investigation. They were looking into whether criminal charges should be laid against Dr Lex or any of his staff. And then they took me down to um, the Wellington Police Headquarters and showed me some photographs um, of ECT machines and staff members. And they asked me who those people were and the machines, the ECT machines, Actrons, what villas they came from. The police became particularly interested in one incident. Just when you thought you'd left Lake Ellis behind, we're going to have to go back there for a moment to hear Kevin's story, but we won't stay for long. This story starts with an electric shock punishment, which knocked Kevin out. After that... Woke up in a bath being sexually assaulted by a person who was in that unit, an inpatient. Kevin was being assaulted by one of the other boys. I'm not going to name this other kid for the sake of his family, but so you can follow everything that happens next, I'll call him Nick. Nick was a bigger kid, one of the oldest in the adolescent unit, 14 to 15. As a child, he had been beaten and neglected. Nick was a survivor of sexual abuse himself. His files show that he was repeatedly sexually abused by a teacher when he was at the Hawkeo Boys' Home in Levin. He was moved from there to Owaraka Boys' Home, where his files show the first incident of Nick abusing another kid. After that, Nick was sent to Kohitere, and he continued the abuse. So he was sent to the end of the line, Lake Alice. This is where Kevin met him. The staff knew what he was, they knew who he was. Yet I woke up to that and I was attacked numerous times after that by that same person and the staff let it happen. Lake Ellis and the welfare homes were filled with vulnerable kids who didn't have anyone looking out for them and sexual predators inevitably saw this as an opportunity. One of the nurse aides at Lake Ellis, John Blackmore, used to take children back to his house in Martin on weekends and abuse them. Nick was a favourite of Blackmore's, and he was taken to his house a lot. The other kids knew about this. They basically saw it as a relationship, and eventually one of them told a nurse. But nobody did anything. Nick was 14. Blackmore was in his 50s. Obviously none of this justifies Nick's own behaviour, but it's maybe not surprising that he looked for targets of his own. In 1974, five boys reported being raped by Nick to Dr Leakes. Kevin Banks was one of them. Eventually Nick was convicted of five counts of sexual assault and transferred to Waikiria Prison. But before Nick was handed over to the justice system, Dr Leakes decided to deal out his own form of justice. Okay, back to 1977. After Kevin's left Lake Alice, he explains to the police what happened next. On this particular day, we stopped, had to go past the clinic in Villa 11 to get the ECT machine out, because that was the home for that grey machine. The grey machine, not the one being used elsewhere in the hospital. This is Lex's special favourite. Get that out and carry it across. Another boy was carrying the extension lead over to Villa 8. Yeah, straight upstairs. Dr Legs led all five boys into the room 
where Nick was waiting. Lex said to Nick, You assaulted these boys. Um, now they can turn around and assault you back. Something to that nature. And it was that, that simple. Just turn the dial. Just turn the dial. The boys were told by Dr. Lex to shock Nick themselves. I wasn't forced to do it, but I was told to do it. If you understand, when you're told to do something, especially by Dr. Lex, you did it. Um, and I did it. I, I was told I could turn the dial as far as I wanted, and I did turn that dial all the way. I regret doing it. I, I, I still have trouble thinking about the fact that I did use that machine. It just makes me as bad as Sal and Leaks, really. I believe I saw the, the final putting the electrode on his bare testicles and penis and knocked him unconscious. But he was screaming, but he, he wouldn't make a noise. Nothing was coming out. So he's going through horrendous pain, but also know what he's done to me as well. I saw him pass out. I saw him slide down the wall. It's hard to see how this could have been justified as medical treatment. But Dr Lex was convincing, and he told the police it was all valid, that he had involved the boys in Nick's punishment to help them face down their perpetrator and reclaim some kind of power, and the police bought it. Though I'm not sure ignorance was the only thing at play here. We've seen the transcript of their interview with Dr Lex, which was done just before he left the country. At times, it's less like an interrogation, and more like the police are coaching Dr Lex, giving him an out. At one point, Detective Senior Sergeant R.L. Butler says to Lex, It is possible. A lot of these boys were only telling half-truths about why they received diversion therapy. And Lex replies, I would think so. Knowing them, they were really the bottom of the barrel. Kids from Hokio. Coeteri and Holdsworth who could not be managed. They were antisocial and destructive kids. In the end, the police decided there wasn't enough evidence to prosecute Dr Leakes. In their words, Leakes' practices were matters of medical ethics, for resolvement by the health department, and possibly also the New Zealand Medical Council and New Zealand Psychiatrists Association. It's lucky then that Kevin was also complaining to the Medical Council. They'd set up a meeting with him at their offices in Wellington. They sat me down in this room, like a big oval office table type thing, and there's microphones hanging down, so it was quite an official arrangement they had there. Kevin was only 18. He was in an environment where he felt intimidated. I asked them if Selwyn Leakes was there in the building, and they said he wasn't. Um, and I said, well, OK, fine, I'll, I'll talk. And he damn well was. He was in the next room with his lawyers here. He had two lawyers. They lied. Leakes was there. Oh, I shat myself, practically. <laughs> I was terrified. Yeah, because it was only very, very fresh from that time, and it's only been out for a very short period of time, not even a couple of years. Then Selwyn Leakes and these two cronies approached me and turned around and sort of tried to convince me that I was dressed well and I was looking well and what damage could Selwyn have done. Kevin looked good, they said. How much damage could Dr Leakes have done? Like the police, the Medical Council did nothing. 
Their inquiries started from the premise that Lex was a doctor and his practice was his business. They weren't about to go out of their way to bring their profession into disrepute. They hid behind the fig leaf in the Mental Health Act that said as long as the treatment was done in good faith, then it was okay. There used to be a thing in the Medical Practitioners Act that said no doctor shall be guilty of any crime if they uh, do something in good faith. This is Professor John Weary again. Can you believe it? I could chop off your head and as long as I had a good reason for it, I can't be prosecuted. But to Weary, it's pretty clear that what happened with Nick and the boys was not treatment. I mean, that's a criminal offence. It's assault. Right. So I don't know what the police are doing. In 1978, Dr Lex disappeared from New Zealand. He didn't have a conviction, he still had his medical licence, he was free. But the kids of Lake Alice would never be fully free of him. After leaving Lake Alice, Rangi and Tyrone continued on through more state welfare homes, ending up back at Owairaka. By this stage, they were 14 and 15. They were bigger and even more hostile towards authority. And they were even better at escaping. One night, we stole a car that wasn't unusual for us. There were, I think, four boys and two girls. Correct. Yeah. So anyway, we stole this car, and in it was a rifle with magazine and a full belt of ammunition. And we thought, fantastic. We uh, went on a joyride. First we went, we were around Mangaree, and we decided to break into the petrol station. This didn't work, so we just shot it up and took off. I think it was Papakura. We were driving through there, and the cops we're driving the other way, so that you know, and this is at 12 o'clock, or whatever, it's quite late, and we we're the only car on the road, so they turned around and chased us. As Tyrone, Rangi, and their mates sped away from the police, Tyrone grabbed the gun, climbed into the back, and wound down the window. He lined up one of the policemen in the scope of the rifle and got ready to pull the trigger. But at that moment, an image of a woman came into his head. One of his foster mums, one of the good ones. She showed me a total different life for that short time, you know, than I'd ever had before. And so that installed in me um, empathy and stuff that other people do care. Tyrone changed his mind in that moment, tilted the gun up and shot at the police lights instead. But the moral of the thing is I could have killed them both. Hadn't it been for her and teaching me that, then those two would have been dead. So when you got caught, what happened then? Oh, uh, they took us out for ice cream and cake. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) No, the police took the kids back to Owairaka where they were locked up in the secure block. While they were in there, something happened. The principal hit Rangi 
and Rangi hit him back, and violence erupted. Rangi was then sent on to Mount Eden Prison. He was 14 years old. Uh, I went to the front gate, main gate, and um, there was all these screws lined up. They had single-barrel shotguns over their shoulders. One of them said to me, you can on me and I'll blow your little fucking head off. We know that the welfare homes were run a lot like prisons. But this was Rangi's first taste of the real thing. So they, they put me, took me downstairs into the dungeon. And they locked me in the cell down here. And a couple of old school guys managed to get my cell door unlocked and get me out in the long, in the yard with them. And they were, uh, they were Ronnie Jordans and they had Dirkillies, basic road machine gun killers. This is possibly the moment that decided Rangi's next 36 years. Not only is he sent to prison at 14, he's introduced to some of the top-tier criminals in that prison. Ronnie Jorgensen and John Dirk Gillies were career criminals, doing time for the infamous Bassett Road machine gun murders. They'd killed two men with submachine guns in Auckland in 1963. Nothing like it had ever happened in New Zealand before. And Jorgensen and Gillies were determined to take Rangi under their wing, because Rangi was a Whitcliffe. They knew my Uncle Dean. They were just two old parky guys that liked me because of my last name. Rangi's Uncle Dean Wycliffe was notorious. At the time, he was in prison for manslaughter after a robbery gone wrong. But his real claim to fame came in 1976 when he became the first person ever to escape Paremoremo Maximum Security Prison. And get this, he did it again in 1991. And my uncle was the friend. So Rangi settled in. Straight away I thought, oh, this is me. Beats old Waraka. I was given a huge, humongous meal in comparison to, to the boys' home. And um, the library had penthouses and playboys in it. 14-year-old's dream. From that point that I wanted a life as a crumb. Yeah. You know, at 14 I looked at that and thought, yeah, no, I need to surround myself with people that are up there in the criminal world. By the time I was 16, I was in Paremoremo Maximum Security, D-Block. Paremoremo was one of the harshest prisons in Aotearoa at the time. It still is. It was an extremely violent place, with rising tensions between gangs. And Rangi was in D-Block, the highest security block in the highest security prison. All up, Rangi has spent 36 years of his life in and out of prison mostly for dishonesty, stuff like burglary, theft and assault. There's records of his violent behaviour in prison, things that Rangi isn't proud of, like punching out one of the guards. Stay here does not teach you to walk away from an altercation between men. They teach you to harden up and rock it out when it takes all. That's, that's learned behaviour, that's from you know, being institutionalised and having a structure built around me based on bullying a picking order. If you don't make it to the top, you're nothing. And then people are going to pick on you until you make it to the top. You know? So you learn very early and stay here that it's a fight for survival. The strongest survivor and the weak will be left behind. That's what stay here teaches you. Prisons at this time were full of men who'd spent their childhoods in state custody. It's not that different now and many didn't survive to tell their stories. On the back of Rangi's neck is a tattooed roll call 
of 11 brothers that killed themselves while he was in D-block. I was 16 years old. I'm watching bodies go past in a gurney in one of the hardest blocks in New Zealand. Rangi's made Tyrone went from welfare homes to prison too, not just in New Zealand, but also in Australia. Between stints in prison, Tyrone tried at different times to take a different track in life. In 1981, Tyrone signed up to join the New Zealand Army's Special Forces. He figured he'd be an asset to them. I was super fit, and with all the things that I'd gone through, you know, like torture and stuff, I thought that, well, you know, whatever they give me is going to be nothing. You know, whatever I have to go through with them, it'll be a ride in the park. They accepted him as infantry, but after he set the medical, they turned him down. Tyrone was told off the record that having Lake Alice on his file ruined his chances. That was pretty gutting for me. That's the start of doors, you know, getting closed. And after that, I just thought, fuck yous, you know. This is going to live with me forever. I shouldn't even have been there. I actually went back there, eh? and I was looking for these cunts. I couldn't find them. How old were you then? It was just after not getting in the army, you know. Oh, yes, after you were that. about 20. Yeah, maybe. I thought, fuck you, cunts. I went to the hall, I went and walked around with nurses, we drove around in my own car. This is where we started this podcast with the angry young man with the mullet seeking revenge. It was Tyrone. And in his boot was ammunition, a semi-automatic rifle, and a pistol. But I couldn't find, I couldn't see anything. Did, any, did you talk to anybody or did anyone question you? No, they looked at me funny, and I thought, yeah, keep looking, you're going to lose your eye. But he couldn't see anyone he knew. I didn't see none of them. I had an older captain, straight away. Yeah, he would have been fucking going down to that morgue. I was after leaks, I wanted to get him. Because I'm bigger. Because I always told him I'm going to kill you. He said, one day I'm going to come and I'm going to kill you. And that was the day. But he wasn't there. And then I just snapped out of it, you know, after that. I just drove out and fucking never thought about it again like that. Meanwhile, Leonie McEnroe, the little girl who'd only ever wanted a family that loved her, decided to make her own. She met a man, they got married pretty young, and had three kids. But by the time she was 30, Leonie's marriage had fallen apart. I was devastated at the loss of my dream. Not the person as such, but the loss of my dream of a family. My biggest fear was that I would literally lose my mind, become mentally unwell, because apparently when I was younger, I had some kind of mental illness that deserved me to be in Lake Alice for two years. I was afraid that that could surface again and I wouldn't realise and I'd lose my children. So Leonie went to see a counsellor, 
who started to help her unpack what had happened to her at Lake Ellis. Around the same time, Leone also brought up Lake Ellis with her divorce lawyer, Philippa Cunningham. And I said to her, you know, I, I had shock treatment for punishment when I was 14. The fact that she was a nurse prior to being a lawyer, she paused on that and said, tell me some more. She was appalled. She was horrified. She said, you know, that's, this, this is not right. And that is where it began. Leonie had been a compliant child. She was treated so badly by the people who were meant to protect her, but she still trusted that they knew best. She'd come to believe a lot of the things they'd told her, including that what had happened to her at Lake Ellis was her fault. But now, for the first time, she was being told a different story, that it wasn't her fault and that it wasn't okay. That period of time was a huge, on reflection, healing time. Mm. They were, for the first time in my life, the most consistent message of this was undeserving, this was wrong, what happened to you should never have happened, and they're standing by me and supporting me and never giving up on that process of getting justice gave me the longest sense in my lifetime at the age of 30 of being worth something, of having value. So someone standing up for you. Yeah, it was huge. That was the first time in my life. As a child, Leone had reacted to abuse and trauma by freezing. But now she found another way to respond. She stood her ground and put up a fight. The Crown were actually my guardian and they employed this person over here. So it's the Crown were liable, I believe, as they saw it, for multiple failures to me. In 1994... Leone sued Dr Leakes and the Attorney-General, the Crown, for $1.5 million. $1.5 million wasn't just a random figure. It was carefully calculated by Leone's other lawyer, Rob Chambers. He was a top expert in the field. It took into account a loss of education and career opportunities, loss of enjoyment of life, and living with traumatic memories. Maybe you've had the experience of facing up to one of your parents over something that happened in your childhood, a time they hurt you or let you down. If your parents were ready for that conversation, maybe it turned out okay. But if they weren't, they probably got defensive, dug their heels in, denied your experience. Well, you can probably guess what happened when Leone confronted the Crown. There were delays from the start. What were the sort of reasons that were given for the delays. But there were all sorts of reasons, and it was legal bedazzlement, legal trickery. And very early on, the Attorney General, or the Crown, stood in front of Dr Leakes 
and his lawyers were always in the background. And the Crown, they became the voice of the two of them. In the end, this process was stalled by constant delay tactics and hurdles. Leone's lawyers had to take the Crown to court twice just to get documents they were entitled to. They made Leone undergo a barrage of psychiatric testing to see if she did have a mental illness. One of those tests took place at a psychiatric hospital called the Mason Clinic. Yes, it's, it's a psychiatric unit. Lock up. It's a lock-up unit for severe criminal, mentally insane people. And they insisted it had to be there. It was absolute intimidation, without a doubt. It was bullying. You know, I think that the Crown hoped that I would just give up. That I'd just give up and go away. But Leonie wasn't going to give up. She had good lawyers, she's a great speaker, and she thinks this made the Crown nervous. My understanding was that my case, my civil claim against the Crown and Dr Leakes was extremely strong and it was most likely to succeed in court. Eventually, after years of stalling, the Crown was made to go through the next step in the legal process. A mediation meeting was set up between the Crown, Dr Leakes and Leone's lawyers. Leakes was secretly flown back into New Zealand from Australia. We were told, in no uncertain terms, that we were to tell nobody that it was taking place or where it was taking place or that Dr Leakes was coming into the country. If we did, the mediation would be cancelled. I had such anxiety and extreme stress around attending that meeting with Dr Leakes present that I had vomiting and diarrhoea for days leading up to it. At the thought of being in the same room as that man again. Leonie was seated at a long oval table, a mediator at one end and a whole bunch of serious looking government officials around it. Leonie's lawyers, Philippa and Rob, were also there. Dr. Leakes and his lawyer walked in, and the mediator sat him directly opposite me. She sat him there, ushered him to that seat opposite me, and I thought I was going to throw up. Philippa and Rob changed the setting. You know, it's just unthinkable. It's mind-blowing. The Crown did most of the talking. It was the first time Leonie had been face-to-face with Leakes since she was 15 years old. He was this condescending, slow-speaking, awkward, repulsive, self-confident creep. Eventually, Leonie was given the opportunity to speak directly to him. I know that I said things around the cruelty and the torture 
that he inflicted on the children and myself. At one point he responded with something like, well, you know, I'm saddened to hear that, you know, if that is your recollection and belief around the events that took place, I remember saying to him something like, I do not know what you did to me when I was drugged and vulnerable. I don't know what you did to me. It was quite quiet in there at the time. And that's when Rob Chambers took me away, took us out of the room, and he said, we'll just let them sit with that for a bit. This must have been a really lonely process for Leone. But she wasn't the only survivor who came forward at the time. In 1997, a lawyer whose brother was in the adolescent unit took on a few claimants. The case got too big for him, and by 1999, another lawyer named Grant Cameron had taken over, representing 95 former children of Lake Ellis. And this case wasn't going to be kept from the public. The Lake Alice Psychiatric Hospital near Wanganui has officially been mothballed. The last of the patients who have been living at the National Security Unit at Lake Alice have been transferred to Wanganui and Auckland. But that won't be the last word on the institution as patients are taking legal action over the treatment they received at the hospital more than 20 years ago. The Labour leader, Helen Clark, says the High Court is not the place to deliver justice to the victims of such shocking mistreatment, and she criticises the government for forcing the victims to relive their suffering in court. The practical ramification is that people who suffer the most severe humiliation, some of it outright torture, sexual abuse, would have to go to court to state their case and have the horrors of 20, 30 years ago brought back up in public. But Leone wanted to go to court. She wanted to confront the Crown and Dr Leakes. In my view, it was the government that was afraid of Lake Ellis being exposed in court because of how it would damage New Zealand's human rights reputation. Behind the scenes, government officials were warning ministers that the allegations were not only credible, but true. After Helen Clark became Prime Minister at the end of 1999, she agreed to settle out of court and the government offered $6.5 million to be divided up among the 95 claimants. As a result of this settlement, a precedent was set. So whatever those survivors were getting, Leone would have to settle for something similar. It'd be a lot less than what she sued for. Also, she was going to have to wait. Her case had been pushed to the back of the queue, even though she'd been the first to file her claim. million wasn't enough, but it was still quite a lot of cash to distribute. So the government appointed a retired High Court judge, Sir Rodney Gallen, and gave him one seemingly simple job. Look into the experiences of the 95 kids and figure out the best formula for splitting the cash between them. 
But Gallen turned out to be a lot more diligent than the government expected. Instead of coming back with a simple spreadsheet, he delivered an astonishing document. It was a blistering attack over 13 pages on the state's abuse of 95 children. The report was filled with horrifying details. The government tried to stop it being published, but failed. Here's part of the report being read by an actor. Every claimant, whether they suffered from the more extreme forms of treatment or not, emphasised that they lived during their whole time at Lake Alice in what can only be described as terror. Several claim that ECT was administered to the genitals. This seems to have been imposed where the recipient was accused of unacceptable sexual behaviour. ECT delivered in circumstances such as those I have described could not possibly be referred to as therapy, and when administered to defenceless children can only be described as outrageous in the extreme. All were in need of understanding, love and compassionate care. This is not what they received at Lake Alice. Eventually, those 95 claimants were paid out. I've heard a lot of different figures, but it sounds like a payout of around $50,000 was typical. Many of them didn't feel it was enough, though. It's not even close to the $1.5 million that Rob Chambers had calculated in Leone's case. Prime Minister Helen Clark issued an apology, but many survivors saw it as disingenuous. The payout was ex gratia, which means a gift i.e. they are being generous, they're not admitting liability. But there was still no public inquiry into what had happened and why. Dr Leese and other staff continued to walk free. Well, I hope Gallon's report and Gallon's statement that it was outrageous in the extreme is never, ever forgotten. We'll finish this episode with the anti-racism campaigner from Accord, Dr Oliver Sutherland. Because, you know, those... Those children, and they were young children, they were from the age of eight years upwards, I mean, I still find it almost impossible, I do find it impossible, to believe what a state of terror those children were living in, being dragged upstairs, hearing the other children screaming, and then being the other children being dragged down the stairs and another one take their place. It's, it's unspeakable. It was unspeakable. And yet people knew Aaron... And they did nothing at the time. In the next episode of The Lake, the fight for justice moves to the international stage. If the government ain't going to listen, we'll sort them out overseas. We learn even more about Dr Selwyn Leakes. I think that he lost sight of his own sadism. Couldn't recognise it. He was somehow given some kind of licence to do what he was doing. My neck and, and stroking my hair, and he had his hand down my dress. And he was saying that he had had this terrible time in New Zealand. And Dr. Leg's past starts to catch up with him. I think the sow and he's run a lot. He won't stop running by the sounds of it. Um, he's got to face up to what he's done, be accountable to what he's done. The Lake was researched and hosted by me, Aaron Smale. It was produced, edited and scripted by Kirsten Johnston and Melody Thomas at Popsock Media.
Tyrone Marks helped support survivors during our interviews. Ben Lemmy wrote music for the series and recorded the narration. Mark Chesterman did sound design and the final mix. At Stuff, our script advisors were Eugene Bingham and Adam Dudding. And the commissioning editors were Carol Hirschfeld and Patrick Crudson. This podcast was made with the support of New Zealand On Air. Thank you.